splendid in divergence. I am resplendent in divergence. Oh, you're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. Water may be shut off today to tens of thousands of homes in Detroit and hundreds of thousands across Michigan if the state lifts a moratorium on water shutoffs due to overdue bills. In the midst of a pandemic, the city and state's least privileged are no longer going to have the water they need to wash their hands and keep themselves safe from the virus. Often this means low-wage essential workers becoming more vulnerable to the virus, which means more contact with everyone and the much better chance that they will no longer be able to provide their essential work. The United Nations has said it is a human rights violation to shut off water in Detroit. That was seven years ago, and they're still doing it. Detroit City Council came up with a plan to make water affordable to everyone. That was 16 years ago, and it might finally be considered. So what happens to a government that no longer provides citizens what they literally need to survive? Water. What impact does shutting people off from their life-giving and saving water, how does that affect democracy? And if there, and is there anything that can be done considering the high cost of infrastructure, especially in an old and still aging massive city like Detroit that has a small population dispersed over a large area. Today, the show is all about water affordability, as we will be speaking in a few to editor-at-large in the Michigan ACLU's communications department, Kurt Guyette, who posted the article, A Detroit Panel Discussion Looks at the Issues Many Moving Parts as the Specter of Shutoffs Again Looms. Past guest Anna Clark, the author of the award-winning book The Poison City, Flint's Water, and the American Urban Tragedy, called Kurt the investigative journalist that helped prove the city of Flint was being poisoned by its own water. Prior to joining the ACLU of Michigan, Kurt worked as a print journalist for more than 30 years, the last 18 of which were spent at the Metro Times, an alternative news weekly based in Detroit, which I read all the time when I was living in the area. Kurt is the recipient of numerous local, state, and national journalism awards. The State Bar of Michigan has honored him three times for his outstanding coverage of legal issue issues. Kurt was on This is how back in June of 2016, right after he posted the story, Governor Snyder tainted by Flint water crisis for the Michigan ACLU's Democracy Watch blog. You can follow Kurt on Twitter at Kurt Guyette. That's G-U-Y-E-T-T-E. And I really appreciate all the condolences you have sent for the passing of my biggest brother nearly a month ago ago to this day. But what I really appreciate about your condolences is what you did not say, and I'll be sharing with you that in a moment. And a little bit later on the show, something was found in my biggest brother's home that is political in nature, and it will make you laugh, and then it will make you cry. And it'll make you cry, and it'll make you cry, and it'll make you cry. Not in a, like, a mourning way, but just what has happened to politics way. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. If it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new by you? Good morning, sir. Uh, I got a couple things. One is uh, I got my shot on Sunday. No kidding. Yes. How did you react to it? Uh, I'd have to say overall minimal. I felt a little tweaky and on edge on Monday, but... But really, really zero, zero side effects. Your arm hurt? No, not at all, actually. It's My arm hurt like hell, and I felt dizzy for like 36 hours. Wow. Yeah, I just felt a little, like I said, a little weird, like I was about to get a headache, but not quite, you know, at that point or whatever. And Where'd you go? Uh, I'm part of Advocate, so and they lowered the uh, age requirements, so... I got the Pfizer through them. But was it by your house? I mean, in, in the city? Yeah, it was in the city. No, it was up on uh, uh, Hall, Black, uh, Halstead and uh, 
Irving Park. Because uh, somebody told me that they went out to the suburbs and they were freaked out because they were in the exterior part of it and they just saw regular civilians. But once they got into the place where they were getting vaccinations, everybody was in military uniform. Uh, now, these were nurses. Oh, it was great. The, the name of my nurse who gave me the vaccine, her name was Mary Jane. <laughs> nurse Mary Jane. Do you ask her if she had any access to anything else that might be laying around the hospital? I don't know, but she was a little bit older than me, so I think it was a, a cruel joke by her parents or something. <laughs> I don't know. Do you like the uh, the donation I found for you? Yes, you gave me uh, a hell banknote. Yeah, $10,000. $10,000 hell banknote. So uh, you can find these in Chinatown on the south side. You can find these in New Chinatown up on the north side. Uh, and these are, this is funerary money. You burn this money at a person's funeral for good luck. And the Vietnamese, uh, there's a whole bunch of different versions of it. The Vietnamese version is absolutely stunning. This is the Chinese version of it that's really cool as well. <laughs> good luck finding a branch. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I want to cash this in. And one last thing. Kurt said, uh, he sent me a little message. He says, the mayor of Detroit has promised to continue the moratorium for two more years. Sweet. So Detroit is no longer in dan- an immediate danger. That's what Mary Dugan was saying he was going to do. Now I'm just curious, what about the rest of the state? Because it was going to be lifted throughout the state, so we'll find Find out in just a bit. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? What are you? (laughs) What are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? I would say water being shut off. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email us, email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? Now, I cannot thank all of the listeners and past guests, people who currently work on the show and those who did in the past, I cannot ever show you all how much your very thoughtful, kind words of condolence for the loss of my biggest brother one month ago, how much all of those messages have meant to me. With all your notes that you've sent, while they've all been incredibly, deeply appreciated, we're not going to be sharing them on air. As their tone and tenor suggests, that was not anyone's intent. Also, our show is called This Is Hell. And I know the maudlin can be hellish, but I'm not going to put you through that kind of self-pitying hell. Instead, I want to thank all of you for what was not in any of your condolences. And that is this kind of transactional sentiment that I keep seeing. All your communications have been completely free of the language of the market, absent the idea of humanity being determined by consumerism. There are none of the cliches of our commodified lives which is what I kept finding online the week I took off to mourn. I tried to stay offline that entire week because I knew what was awaiting me. Sympathy, support, compassion, solace, all of which I will treasure for the rest of my days. But man, any time I went online, I would end up burying my face in my hands and sobbing. At one point, I was so desperate, I made the mistake of looking for help online. But a very short, like less than a minute search only made things much worse. There was advice about processing your grief as if it's some form you fill out, a punch card. Take that form to Department 2 up on the fifth floor, have it stamped and then certified by the registrar on level 7, and you're all set. It's as if there are some simple known steps to take, and if you take them, you can get yourself right, and all of a sudden you're back to work, contributing to capitalism, I mean society. Suggestions of how to deal with grief were also offered, as if there's anything more commodifying to, of life than to say you are going to deal with it, as if you come into some kind of transactional agreement with grief, which you can both presumably benefit from. You cannot make a deal with grief, so it will go away. And if you can make a deal with grief, in reality, that grief did not go anywhere except into the deep recesses of your psyche. And when it eventually does seep back out, you are definitely going to snap. Then there was the counsel to take stock in my emotions or inventory my feelings of mourning and grief. Who knew we can take our myriad feelings right down, which each and every one is, giving them their appropriate SIC codes, cross-reference them with your database, 
that completely defines who you are. Take that algorithm to determine what your personal values and assets are and finalize your balance sheet of grief. And again, take that form to Department 2 up on the fifth floor, have it stamped and certified by the attending registrar on Level 7, and you're all set. So thank you. Thank you to all of you from the bottom of my heart for all of your condolences, and thanks especially for not using the language of consumerism, a commodified life guided by capital. So instead, thanks for your words coming from the much more humane place of mutual care instead of selfish consumerism, which is sadly where much of our vocabulary and thinking exists today. Aside from all of the condolences you have sent, we got a guest suggestion this morning from Drake, who writes, Hey guys, thanks for everything. This is how gets me through the work week. Me too. I wanted to suggest Donald Worcester as a guest. Or maybe it's Worcester. W-O-R-S-T-E-R. He wrote, Shrinking the Earth, the Rise and Decline of American Abundance. I came across a Counterpunch article and thought it would be a wonderful interview for the show. Here's his bio. Donald Worcester is a pioneer of the field of environmental history, held the Hall Distinguished Professorship Chair in American History at the University of Kansas from 1989 to 2012. Currently a professor of world history at Renmin University in, of China. In Worcester's most recent book, he shows how the great windfall of land, resources, and ecological bounty that greeted Europeans when they arrived in the New World five centuries ago dramatically altered the history not only of the Americas, but of the entire Earth. He argues convincingly that to the Europeans, the Western Hemisphere was, in practical terms, a second Earth. Worcester argues the U.S. style of capital and industrialism were made possible by the second Earth's natural abundance, and that over the past two centuries, they have deeply depleted the hemisphere's landscapes and ecosystems. America, Worcester writes, is going to have to shift from a culture of abundance to a culture of limits. Hope you can get him on. My best to the This Is Hell staff and my condolences to Chuck for the loss of his brother. Thanks again for all you guys do. Thank you, Drake. The article Drake then links to is actually an interview with Daniel Worcester by past This Is Hell guest Dan Cox, and it's from last November, November 2020, titled How We Burned Through a Whole Hemisphere in Just 500 Years, an interview with Dan- Donald Worcester. And Worcester's book, Shrinking the Earth, it actually came out in 2016, which brings us back to a question that we have asked of you before. Should we have guests on to talk about older books? Because Drake, this sounds absolutely fantastic. You too can email us your guest suggestions or topic ideas or anything you want to to chuck at thisishell.com, DMing us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or messaging us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can just send us stuff to thisishell2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell coming up if it wasn't enough that shutting off water is a violation of human rights and a deadly threat to public health it ain't great for democracy either and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what are you not paranoid enough about what are you not paranoid enough about and i found something at my brother's house that is going to make you laugh and make you cry. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing. Today's show is Richard Norwood. Us humans, we need water to survive. During the pandemic, we need water to wash our hands and limit the possibility we will get the virus and die. Subsequently, there's been a moratorium in Detroit and across the state of Michigan on shutting off water because water bills have not been paid. However, the moratorium is set to end today. Still in the midst of the pandemic, here to talk water, its affordability, democracy, and, quote, an extraordinary story of world historical uh, purpose. Returning to This Is Hell is ACLU journalist Kurt Guyette, who posted the article, A Detroit Panel Discussion, looks at the issue's many moving parts as the specter of shutoff again looms. Kurt is editor-at-large in the ACLU's communication department, and you can find Kurt on Twitter, at Kurt Guyette, that's G-U-Y-E-T-T-E. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kurt. Thanks for uh, having me on. Kurt was on This Is Hell back in June of 2016, right after he posted the article, Governor Snyder Tainted by Flint Water Crisis, for uh, the Michigan ACLU's Democracy Watch blog. Kurt, so uh, you told Richard beforehand that the moratorium has not been lifted. They're going to continue the shutoffs, uh, or going to continue not shutting off people's water, which is fantastic. That's for the state or the city of 
Detroit, and Mayor Dugan said that he was going to do that. So uh, does that apply to the entire state or is that just the city of Detroit? No, that's that's just the city of, of Detroit. Uh, the mayor is running for re-election and uh, I think that calculation has to be uh, you know, noted, uh, but it is only for the city of, of Detroit, and it's now about 670,000 residents, uh, but the rest of the state, uh, it's all up to the, the local uh, jurisdictions as to whether they are going to start shutting off people's, people's water in the midst of a, a pandemic. It is... It's, it's, it's just absolutely insane uh, to be in the situation that we're in and to create a, a, a situation where people could be at risk of losing the water that is needed by society to help fight the pandemic. They're acting like this is all over when cases are surging uh, in Michigan, for, for sure. It, they're, they're absolutely surging. So... You know, it, it's it's ludicrous and, and deeply disturbing that there would be such short-sightedness and and lack of, of concern about the the well-being of society in general. It's, it's it's hard to wrap your brain around. You are far more familiar with Mayor Duggan's politics than I am. Do you think that if this was not, uh, if there wasn't a pending election, that he would have lifted the moratorium? Jeez, I don't know about about that. I do know that uh, this administration, like previous administrations, has fought and fought and fought, and often dishonestly fought uh, attempts to create a income-based rate structure for water customers in Detroit. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's just very cynical. Uh, they say, they refer to water assistance programs, which often run out of money, uh, as water affordability. So the, just the terminology that they use is intended to deceive uh, because uh, Assistance programs are not affordability programs, and they they are not adequate. Uh, now the governor says that he, he or the governor, the mayor of Detroit, has said that he will work over the next two years to develop a, a true affordability program. But what that really means, nobody knows because he has not uh, clarified it. But as I said, in the past, they refer to assistance programs as affordability, uh, cynically and untruthfully. So uh, who, who knows where they're, where they're going? Uh, the ACLU of Michigan currently has a lawsuit against the city and the state as a way to force the city to, one, permanently end shutoffs, and two, uh, create a true affordability plan based on people's incomes, because that's the only way that water is going to be affordable. If you establish uh, that no more than a certain percentage of a person's income should go to uh, pay water. I think the EPA pegs that around 3%. Uh, I just saw a, a statistic uh, recently that uh, some research shows that uh, Detroit people pay on average 10% of their income goes toward water because the rates are, are very, very high here. And there's poverty. The poverty rate in Detroit is close to 40%. There's just lots and lots of, of poor people, people on fixed income, I know when uh, Detroit first started ramping up shutoffs uh, as part of the bankruptcy process in uh, 2014, and I started writing about the issue. I was going, I was following, basically following the shutoff crews around and making note of, of where water was being shut off 
and then going back later and interviewing the people and almost without fail, they were people on fixed incomes, uh, people with mental and physical disabilities, older people, uh, you know, single moms uh, on, on welfare. You, you know, society's most vulnerable people, they were, they were the ones that were having their, their access to water shut off and simply because they are, are too poor to, too poor to pay. And, and part of what's, what makes it extremely uh, frustrating and upsetting is that there is research uh, that indicates that by making water affordable uh, to poor people, actually your collections increase because if it is affordable, people will pay their water bills because they don't want to run the risk of, of losing it. But it's only when, you know, you're getting water bills of $300, uh, $400, uh, that you just throw up your hands and say, I, I can't pay it. So you won't even make a partial payment. And so then collection rates go, go down. And so again, it, it's just, it, it, there's not even good common sense uh, to doing it because the, the water utility will actually be healthier financially if you make rates affordable. That's uh, Roger Colton, who's an expert on the issue. And back in 2005, developed a water affordability plan that was uh, presented in, in, to the Detroit City Council and passed, but it's, it's never been implemented. Uh, now, other places, uh, Philadelphia, uh, several years ago, uh, Baltimore, more recently, did institute the kind of plan that activists in Detroit were adv advocating uh, as far back as, as, as 2005. And one of the, uh, someone from Philadelphia who was on the panel that uh, was in the blog that you referenced, uh, reported that they are finding that what uh, Colton said would happen is happening, that collections are increasing because water is being made affordable, that no more than a certain percentage of a, a household income will go to paying water bills. How so much, that, that, that was a very long answer, but, but that's, that's kind of sums up a, a lot of what's going on. Yeah, and because it was a long answer, I have a, a lot of follow-up questions to it, but that's totally fine. We have all the time in the world. So uh, one of the things that uh, when you were talking about these $300, $400 water bills, uh, how appropriate are those bills? Is that price gouging or is that what is necessary in order to keep water flowing to a a massive city that now only has a third of its population. Yeah, by law, water utility cannot charge more than the, the, the cost of providing service. Uh, the, the issue in Detroit and for a lot of cities is just what you said. At, a, at its peak, its population was almost 2 million people. Now the population, the last I looked, was around... 670,000. So almost two-thirds of the population has, has been lost since its peak in the, in the 1950s. Uh, and as I said, about 40% of that population lives in, in poverty. The, the problem is that the, whether there's homes or, or, or not, the water infrastructure that, uh, runs beneath the city, uh, which is about 137 uh, square miles in area, the, the, those water lines and sewer lines need to be maintained, repaired, and replaced. Uh, there's, there's some water mains in Detroit, and maybe this is no longer the case. I know a couple years ago when I was looking at it, that they still had wooden water mains from the late 1800s in, in some places. And compounding the issue is the fact that the federal government since the 1970s 
has cut by about almost 80% the uh, amount of money it allocates to uh, states and municipalities to pay for, for water infrastructure. So with that federal money gone, the only place that these utilities can get the money that they need uh, to maintain and, and replace uh, old uh, systems is on the backs of, of ratepayers, And so, you know, every year the, the, the rates are, are going up and up and up. And every year more and more people are getting priced out of water is being priced out of their affordability range. So one of the things that absolutely needs to happen is for the federal government to step up and, and start providing uh, funding again uh, so that it the burden does not fall exclusively on ratepayers because in places like Detroit, the money's just not there to do it. You said that this idea of lifting the moratorium on water shutoffs uh, was kind of fueled by this I, this concept that it's all over, that the pandemic is finished. Michigan had a huge campaign against mask wearing, social distancing, any safety protocol. Exactly a year ago, anti-maskers, some in body armor and carrying automatic weapons, entered the Michigan State Capitol during a vote on pandemic safety protocols by the state legislature. So how are Michigan Michiganders reacting now that va- vaccines are available? You say the pandemic is far from over. Do the people of Michigan believe the pandemic is much closer to being over than you are than you believe it is? Well, it, it depends on which Michigan you're talking about. Uh, you, you know, Trumpsters, uh, I think, still don't believe that the virus is a serious threat. They still believe the the lies that were told to them by uh, Trump. At the outset, it's no worse than the flu. You know, all, all this, all this baloney that that he uh, fed people uh, was swallowed, and they, you know, they're the anti-maskers. Is it it's a, become a political issue, uh, and that's no great insight, but but it's but it's true uh, that you know wearing a mask, you somehow you know caving. Uh, to the the Democrats uh, by by doing that, so that's you know there's a significant number of of Michigan and that are diehard Trump supporters. You know the people that strapped on their AK-47s and marched on the Capitol in what was almost a, a, a prelude to the a, a assault on uh, Congress that that took place on on January sixth. It was almost like a, a, a test run for that. To, to see those people armed like that, marching through the Capitol, that was that was very, very unnerving. That, that was a frightening thing to watch. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly where everybody on the state is. I know that there's a lot of people opposed to it, but, you know, everybody's a has a right to their opinions. They don't have a right to uh, uh, decide what you know what the what the science is and, and what the facts are. And by allowing this legislation to expire without being renewed, right now the state legislature is on their spring break, so it's not even they're not even session to to renew this legislation right now. Uh, one of the things that I'm really concerned about when it comes to lifting the moratorium is. Uh, people like my sister, who live up in the Grayling area uh, by Roscommon County, uh, they, she lives in an area where there's a military base, where there are a lot of uh, retired veterans who live in that area, an area that is very, very much pro-Trump, voting two to one for Trump in both the 2016 and 2020 elections. I'm just really concerned that communities like that will be lifting these moratoriums. And that leads me to a question about class or race. This this is an area where it is predominantly white, but there is a lot of poverty. You discussed the racial aspect of the uh, water shutoffs. So is there is it more of a, a racial aspect to water shutoffs, or do you think it's more of a class aspect to water shutoffs because poor whites are facing the exact same problem in rural areas? Yeah, you know, it's both, right? Uh, 
And I, I, I think, I mean, I almost always talk about race and class. Uh, and, and those, those two issues are linked, uh, and often in, in, inseparable and that, uh, things that are affecting minority communities are also affecting uh, poor white people as well. Uh, But it's a particularly acute problem in a lot of Michigan's big cities because they suffer the same situation as, as Detroit, which is, you know, massive population loss. Uh, Flint's another example. Flint used to be 200,000 people. Now it's fewer than, than 100,000 people. And that, you know, also, and not by coincidence, uh, Michigan's uh, emergency manager law, which is the most uh, regressive uh, receivership law it, in the United States uh, and was jammed down the throats of uh, the people of, of Michigan uh, allows the, the governor to appoint an emergency manager uh, over control of uh, cities, school districts, and, and even counties that are at risk of becoming financially insolvent. Uh, these people are essentially uh, dictators given un checked almost limitless authority over the uh, municipalities and and school districts that they take control of. And they are really answerable to to no one. It was an emergency manager that made the decision to use the Flint River water uh, for a two-year period uh, while this new pipeline was being built that led directly to the, the disaster in in Flint. It was an emergency manager who took Detroit through uh, its bankruptcy. And in that process, the Detroit Water and Sewerage Department, which provided water to, I I think, maybe as many as 4 million customers in southeast Michigan. And Detroit built the water and sewage systems that allowed all these suburbs to be built in the first place. That control of that water department was taken away from Detroit and put in the hands of a, a newly created uh, regional uh, water authority, the Great Lakes Water Authority, uh, so that Detroit, like the control of the most important uh, commodity uh, anywhere, was, was taken away from Detroit, and the system that they built was taken away from it. And they're really getting a pittance in return. They got locked into a, a 40-year lease. And the, the amount of money that they net off of that lease is only $37 million a year for, for a, a system that it's, it's, it's worth is almost incalculable. But uh, I, I think that any uh, fair-minded person that, that looked at that deal can't help but come to the conclusion that Detroit really is getting screwed horribly, uh, you know, because that $37 million doesn't escalate, and it doesn't go very far right now. But in 30 years, how far is it going to go? You know, and that money's supposed to go to, to pay to uh, repair and replace infrastructure. It's, it's, it's going to be almost nothing. And, and, and so uh, part of what the, the discussion at that panel discussion uh, I wrote about was the emergency manager uh, law and the effect of that uh, clearly on Detroit, clearly on uh, Flint, but of the eight cities that ended up being taken over under that law, seven were majority minority cities. And, And the people in those cities it's not, it's not an exaggeration to say they had democracy taken away from them. They could still vote for city council people, but those city council people and, and mayors actually had no power, uh, certainly had no power if the emergency manager decided not to uh, give it to them. That's how 
ironclad to control these emergency managers is. It's essentially anti-democratic, and the, the anti-democratic nature of that law had a big effect on, on water issues in uh, certainly two of the, the state's biggest cities. Do you think that undemocratic nature had any impact on the reaction by especially the right when it comes to the pandemic? Gosh, I don't I don't know about that. Uh, currently, there's no no cities are under or school districts are under emergency management. Uh, but the law and, and this is this is personally a very, very frustrating uh, thing um, because I was originally hired. Uh, to write exclusively about this emergency manager law uh, that the ACLU of Michigan got a grant from the, the Ford Foundation and hired me to write about it because they were so concerned about this this law and how completely anti-democratic it was, the impact it had on, on minority communities. But they also saw that Given the the makeup of the legislature, it was unlikely to get uh, overturned uh, through the political process anytime soon, and that it would be difficult to challenge in the courts, which which has proved to be the case. So another way that they saw to uh, attack it was to just report on it, uh, you know, report fairly, but to to focus on it and. It, given everything that was uncovered, you, you know, the governor appointed a task force after the Flint disaster to, to uh, get to the root of the cause of it. And the governor's own task force, the governor who was the person single most responsible for implementing that law, the task force he appointed uh, unanimously concluded that that law was pivotal and critical in creating the, the Flint water crisis. Uh, so, you, you know, if you're NASA and you shoot up eight rockets and seven of them get off the ground and into orbit and one of them blows up on the launch pad, you don't sit around talking about how successful the uh, first seven were. You look for the cause of what caused the one to blow up, and then you make changes to make sure that was never done again. In Michigan, they looked up, uh, looked into uh, and determined why the Flint blew up uh, the way it did, but they did absolutely nothing to make sure that it never happens again. And, and the only thing that's, that's wrong about that analogy is that it would indicate that things went great in the other uh, seven places uh, where emergency management was imposed. And, and also uh, the Detroit Public Schools and another uh, school system in, in Detroit. It, it was absolutely a disaster for those school systems, absolutely, absolutely a disaster. So to to have that law remain on the books unchanged when it's been clearly proved how horrendous it is and, and the, the, the disastrous results it, it has produced in, in at least several cases is absolutely unconscionable, un, unconscionable. So has there been blowback against the politicians who do still support the law? Because most of those politicians are from the right. You no, know, because Detroit or Michigan has been so gerrymandered, you know, they're pretty safe. They, they created, you know, their, their, their numbers in the, in the legislature is... There are a majority of both houses. It's way disproportionate to uh, where the state is uh, politically. Uh, you know, Michigan uh, pretty resoundingly uh, went for Biden this this past election. Uh, our two senators are, are are both Democrats. So it's only because of the extreme uh, gerrymandering that uh, has taken place that the uh, right is able to maintain maintain uh, control of, of the, the legislature. We also have a Democratic uh, governor. We have a Democratic governor. We have a Democratic uh, secretary of state. We have a Democratic uh, attorney general. Uh, so 
again, the, 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 the gerrymandering, which a grassroots uh, led uh, ballot initiative that uh, overturned the, the way uh, congressional uh, districts are drawn was approved by voters in, in 2018. And now there's going to be a, a nonpartisan uh, panel responsible for uh, drawing the, the, the new districts once the uh, census uh, results are, are available. But for right now, because of that, they are able to maintain control. And, and you know, that's, that's part of the reason that the, uh, the shutoff moratorium is, is a, a expiring. Uh, you know, again, it, and to get back to the racism it, it, it involved here, you know, we talked about the white flight from Detroit, but that white flight was made possible in part because of the low interest federally backed mortgages that uh, people were able to get that allowed them to buy those homes in the suburbs. But black people and other people of color could not get those loans. And, and also at the, around the same time, beginning in the 50s, the interstate highway system was being built. Um, and, you know, the taxes of black people were paying for those interstate highways that were taking people to the, uh, the suburbs and allowing them to uh, commute back to the city for jobs. And in Detroit, one of those federal highways absolutely wiped out one of the most uh, prosperous uh, African-American communities in, in, in the city. So it destroyed uh, a, a thriving, uh, prosperous neighborhood to build these roads to get people to the suburbs that black people couldn't move to. And so they were essentially financing, helping finance uh, the, what created the downward spiral. Uh, white people begin to move out, your tax base erodes, which then causes a cutback in services, which then causes more white people to want to leave. So it creates a, a downward spiral. Black people aren't able to leave because they can't get the loans uh, needed to, to, to do that. So they're half stuck in the city. And, and then so things deteriorate. And so you're you're you're. So you have a situation where there's 670,000 people left and uh, not enough money to really fund the, the, the city. And then the white people blame that on black people saying, look, look, they can't handle their own business. Either they uh, don't have the brain power or they are so corrupt that, you know, that's the problem. Not the racism that put them in a, a completely unattainable situation in, in, in the first place, you know, it, it, the, so the racism is, is particularly, particularly acute uh, as a, a cause of the problem and, and continues to be because it's, you know, there's historical racism, there's structural racism, and then, and then there's the, 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 just the current racism that exists. And that racism has white people uh, because of their racist mindsets, blaming black people for, for, problems that were foisted on them because of racism. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, 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 it's just so, so crazy. The lack of understanding and, and recognition of the real cause of these, these problems and the, the, the aspects of racism that contribute to it and allow it to continue. Back in October of 2014, a United Nations team said the city of Detroit was violating human rights by shutting off water to some 27,000 households who can't pay their bills. So do you think that this kind of violation is tolerated by Michigan, by the city of Detroit, by the United States, only because of the lack of democracy you see in Michigan? Is the, does the lack of democracy contribute to or play a role in continuing to violate a U.N. human rights condemnation? Well, you know, the judge in the bankruptcy trial, because this was also an issue in the, uh, Detroit's bankruptcy, that judge ruled water isn't a human right. <laughs> you know, so there's... For all moral purposes, you, you know, how could you say it's not? How could you deny something uh, that is essential to, to people's, people's lives? Uh, 
So, you know, I don't know about the, the, the lack of uh, democracy. Uh, certainly it's the case of the emergency manager law. You know, this emergency manager law, it was initially a, uh, passed by the, uh, the Michigan legislature and signed by the governor. Uh, as soon as that happened, uh, through a grassroots effort, people started collecting signatures to put a, a measure on the ballot to overturn that law. And the, and the right fought tooth and nail and used all sorts of, of, of really illegitimate uh, efforts to, to try to uh, prevent, prevent that signature gathering uh, from happening and, and to, to get the measure on the ballot. Uh, but they failed. And it got on the ballot, and the people of Michigan overwhelmingly uh, approved of revoking that law because it was too extreme, too anti-democratic. And what happened was that the as soon as as soon as the uh, people start gathering those signatures, uh, they start to have meetings. Uh, the governor's people and and uh, these attorneys uh, from Jones Day, which uh, ended up uh, making, gosh, I don't know how how many uh, millions off of uh, Detroit bankruptcy, uh, came up with a, a a plan of what to do uh, if that ballot measure was successful and and. What they did within weeks after uh, voters rejecting it, they came back with a law that mostly mirrored the ones that voters had just rejected. And in a lame duck session of the legislature, re reinstituted it. And, and, and so, you know, you, when you think about it, you have a law that's anti-democratic. People through the democratic process gather together and reject it, and then in a way that is incredibly anti-democratic, came back and, and reinstituted and did it in a way, in Michigan, if you uh, attach uh, expenditures to a bill, that, that bill uh, cannot be uh, revoked. Uh, and, and so they, 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 they did it in a way that essentially just jammed it down the throats of the people of Michigan. There was nothing that they could do about it. Uh, you know, that's the extent to the, the anti-democratic aspect of, of this, or it's, it's a big part of it, is ignoring the, the will of the people. Uh, and, and they've been able to, to, to do it and continue to get away with it. I guess the one thing that's encouraging is the efforts, uh, of not just in Michigan, around the country, but to, to reject this. Although Michigan uh, just in, introduced a whole package of uh, voter suppression legislation, but, you know, like is being done in, in other states, uh, because, you know, the, the, the right, the only way that they can uh, win elections is to keep people from, from voting. It looks like, and and that's what's going on in states all over the country, including Michigan. You write that pointing to the work of a person you mentioned earlier, utilities expert, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Roger Colton, who helped develop an income-based affordability plan that was passed by city council in 2006 but never implemented. Activists have long contended that it makes much more fiscal sense to keep water affordable for poor residents because doing so actually increases collection rates. Now, Food and Water Watch described Roger Colton as the country's leading utility affordabilities expert and an independent consultant with Fisher, Sheehan, and Colton, which specializes in law and economics consulting. If this plan was passed by Detroit City Council 15 years ago, what explains why it has yet to be implemented? Why wasn't it implemented immediately in 2006? Uh, because the, the mayor and the uh, water board uh, refused to do it. They said that there's a, a law that actually prevents them from doing that. But that is that's a red herring that's been very thoroughly uh, just debunked by uh, 
lawyers with the ACLU of Michigan and, and other lawyers, uh, including the, the research arm of the Detroit City Council that says that it's, it's really a, a red herring and that it does not prevent uh, this kind of uh, income-based affordability plan uh, from, from occurring. But, but they keep saying that, and they certainly have never done anything to try to, uh, to, to challenge the notion that, that there's a law that, that prevents that from happening. But it's, it's really a, a red herring that they've been able to keep using uh, to, to justify not, not doing what both makes moral sense, but also good economic sense. So is the law and, and practical sense, you know, the, the, there's a really a wonderful a group of activists in Detroit that took it upon themselves to do research uh, in, in uh, collaboration with uh, Henry Ford Health Systems here in Detroit, uh, where they found that in areas where there were high numbers of uh, water shutoffs, the the number of people showing up at the hospital with illnesses related to the lack of uh, ability to uh, access hygiene, they were 1.5 uh, times more likely to show up at the hospital, people from high areas uh, of sh shutoffs. So first of all, you don't shouldn't even need a study to, to, to show you what you know, science has been telling us since uh, at least uh, the 1800s, which is the is one way to stem the uh, spread of a, a lot of uh, communicable diseases is to, you know, good sanitation. You, you know, you wash your your body, you wash your dishes, you wash your clothes in order to help stop the spread of, of disease. And that if you take away that water, then of course you are going to have a, a surge in uh, certain communicable diseases. Uh, so you don't, you shouldn't need a study to, to show what common sense uh, dictates. But they did the study, and again, the, the you know the city just just tries to refute it or or find flaws with it rather than embracing it and using it to to as as. Uh, uh, fodder to to and evidence to to justify what doing with the not just the right thing but also the 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 smart thing the responsible thing. You're right, as you mentioned earlier, water systems around the country are forced to raise rates beyond the reach of many of their customers because the federal government has slashed assistance to states and communities. So, is this are these water crises that cities are facing right now? Are these something new? Because I could swear my parents were telling me that back in the 50s and 60s, water was pretty much free. Yeah, well, it is, it's just getting more and more severe because it comes back to the infrastructure uh, that, that these old, especially these older cities, their systems are old. They need to be replaced. They need to constantly be repaired because not doing so then just makes things even more costly. I mean, if you have, if you don't maintain your water delivery system, then what happens is that those water mains break. And when those water mains break, uh, what happens is that it causes streets to collapse. So, you know, if things get in, in that bad of shape, then you not only have the cost of repairing the water main that broke, you also have the cost of re replacing the street that uh, collapsed. Uh, so not maintaining systems properly just drives up the cost almost exponentially in, in the long run. So you know, it's, it's like, gosh, it's like not repairing your roof when it needs to, or replacing your roof when it needs to be replaced. So then what happens is your roof starts leaking, and then you have, you know, the plaster uh, damaged all throughout your house, and, and you know, mold uh, 
toxic mold spreading and, and all that kind of stuff. It is not taking care of problems uh, before they occur it just drives up the, 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 the cost. And, and that's what all uh, lots and lots of these cities are, are facing. Uh, but it's also an issue for, you know, rural areas where they just don't have the, the numbers, where the, the cost of installing uh, those systems originally was spread around. But now there's on the backs of, the, of those customers. And the problem there is that the systems are, are large and the, the numbers of uh, people are, are few. Uh, it's just because it's, it's a rural area and people are more more spread out. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an issue for everybody. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just these big uh, cities that are majority minority. It really is a, a universal issue for at least low income people everywhere. You know, if you're rich, it's not a problem. One last question for you, Kurt. We've been speaking with ACLU journalist Kurt Guyette, who posted the article, A Detroit Panel Discussion Looks at the Issues, Many Moving Parts of Water Affordability as the Specter of Shutoffs Again Looms. Kurt is editor-at-large in the ACLU's Communications Department. He is the recipient of numerous local, state, and national journalism awards. The State Bar of Michigan has honored him three times for his outstanding coverage of legal issues. Kurt was on This Is Hell back in June of 2016, right after he posted the story, Governor Snyder tainted by Flint water crisis for the Michigan ACLU Democracy Watch blog. You can follow Kurt on Twitter at Kurt Guyette. That's G-U-Y-E-T-T-E. And I'm not certain if you remember this or not, but our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our, our audience is going to hate your response. You quote a Yale professor by the name of Jason Stanley, a philosophy professor, saying that what we are witnessing in the uh, water shutoff crisis is the removal of a core public good from democracy. Now, this is a question that came up yesterday with author and historian Andrew Basevich when we were discussing our current state of affairs as opposed to our past. And Andrew argues how that social contract of the past, individual duties performed in exchange for collective benefits, has been broken. Is shutting off water breaking the social contract? And if so, does breaking the social contract break democracy? Well, you're certainly breaking a a social contract. Uh, But I don't think it breaks democracy. I think what I see is that it causes the backlash is a resurgence of, of democracy. And, you know, the, the one thing that has me being optimistic is young people. Uh, I, I see the activism of, of young people. I see the, the politics of, of young people. It, it, I just think that they get it. Uh, and, and they get it in a way that is very, very encouraging. Um, you know, the number of, of uh, young white people that turned out for the Black Lives Matter protest last summer uh, was, was very, very encouraging. Here, I saw, I saw young people who were responding, not out of their own direct self-interest, uh, but in support of other people. And they were putting themselves at risk of both, you know, tear gas and getting beat up and arrested by police. And they're also putting themselves at risk of uh, uh, COVID-19. So they were literally putting their lives on the line for solidarity uh, of uh, people being oppressed. And, and, and they were doing it in such numbers. I found that very, very encouraging. Uh, who, who they were uh, backing uh, politically, uh, you know, that was also very, very encouraging. I think that they get uh, in a way that I, I hadn't seen uh, get what your, what your show uh, focuses on, the, 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 the harms caused by unchecked capitalism. Uh, I, I just see more people getting that and, and, and acting on that 
in, in a way that I, I find very, very encouraging. And, you know, I'm not the most optimistic uh, person in the world. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, me recognizing that and saying that I am optimistic about something uh, is, is you know, <laughs> says something. I was going to say, you cannot be very optimistic if you've spent a good portion of your life following people around shutting off others' water. I think that's probably, that leads to a lot of pessimism in your life. Kurt, yeah. thank you so much for being on our show again. ACLU journalist Kurt Guyette posted the article, a Detroit panel discussion looks at the issues, many moving parts, the issue being water affordability, as the specter of shutoff again looms. Kurt is editor-at-large of the ACLU's communications department. Department, and you can follow him on Twitter at Kurt Guyette. Look up Guyette, G-U-Y-E-T-T-E at our website, thisishell.com, and you can hear our interview from 2016 on the Flint water crisis. Thank you so much for being back on our show. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for devoting so much time to a really important issue. A really important issue that, that you brought up. So thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, thank you. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Also live stream host and podcast host. Producing this week's show, or today's show, I should say, is uh, Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hell is, what are you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell gets whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Richard, can you please uh, share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Yes, I can. Sweet. And appropriately enough, Sean M. says water access. (laughs) There you go. Uh, What are you not... What are... What's it? I know. What, what are, are you, you not paranoid enough about? What are you not paranoid enough about? Jacob H. says the passage of time. <laughs> That's nice. And uh, Kuhn, uh, how would you pronounce this guy's name? K-E-W-N. All right, Kuhn. Kuhn. His answer is, cats hell-bent on revenge murdering me in my sleep. <laughs> Jesus. So that tells me that Kuhn murdered one of his cats in their sleep. <laughs> I would be really afraid, Coon. Do not go to sleep. <laughs> also, I'm fearing for your cats as well. The whole relationship sounds really screwed up. Our Alex says that leftism is irrelevant to the concerns of the working class and mostly just provides ruling class liberals with new avenues to justify and expand control over the working class. Okay, so we know what's keeping up Alex at night. And our last one for today is Tyler R. says, the microchips in the vaccines. (laughs) I'm definitely not paranoid enough about that. Uh, And uh, the hallucinations, I wasn't paranoid enough about, apparently, because I definitely had them. You can leave your answer on our Facebook page. You can tweet them to us. You can email email them to us. But again, you have to have your reply in by the end of tomorrow's show. So uh, my brother's daughter, my niece, she found something at my uh, late brother's home. Uh, He recently passed about a month ago, as I was saying earlier. And my brother was very, very heavily involved in politics. Uh, And you can go back and listen to the three monologues I did in, or the four, I think, that I did in the week following his passing. And you can find out how he was involved in politics, including being investigated for uh, potentially, or allegedly, plotting to assassinate President Ford. So uh, he had a, a lot of politica, political memorabilia in his house. And my niece gave me one of the, one of the things he got uh, during his lifetime, obviously. And it's a political campaign button. But it's funny until you think about it when it gets real sad. So the button is President Quayle, question mark? Now I know why I voted for Clinton. People voted in the intensely neoliberal politics that overturned generations of democratic policy, that turned, you know, with the comprehensive omnibus, mass incarceration with NAFTA, 
Clinton brought in all of these policies, Glass, getting rid of Glass-Steagall. That leads to the financial, uh, that leads to the uh, financial collapse of uh, 2008. People voted that into office because they were afraid that President George H.W. Bush was going to die and we were going to have a president quail. That was their entire logic for voting for Clinton. That was it. It was just opposed to a president quail. President George H.W. Bush died in 2018. There was no worry ever that President Quayle would ever be president. Also, I'm pretty sure that they've misspelled President Quayle on here, which is ironic. <sighs> Richard, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at ThisIsHell.com. Oh, I don't have that information. Uh, well, I do. Ben Ehrenreich is going to be on. He's going to discuss his article, We Are Hurtling Toward Global Suicide for the New Republic. I noticed that Alex did not get the notes out for today's show, but I think that's because he is in the midst of being vaccinated right now, possibly, potentially. Not too sure. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live again, 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place as well as share it on social media. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Nor- uh, Norwood. Thanks to Kurt Guyette. Thanks to Richard Norwood. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. By the way, public service announcement that I was reminded of right before we went on air. I know this is a little bit late, considering the pandemic has been around for over a year, but I just want to tell everyone out there, especially men, do not urinate after using hand sanitizer. It's a huge mistake. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.